We are honored and grateful to have uh, Dr. Soong Chan Ra with us today. Would you please give him a huge renaissance welcome as he comes out to the stage. Thank you. I'm gonna pray for him and get out of his way. Lord, we're grateful for how you use people. And I just pray in this moment, God, that you would quiet our hearts and you would uh, use our brother to speak to us exactly what you would have us to hear. So we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thank you, church, for this very kind invitation and the chance to be with you here this weekend. Um, this is kind of a homecoming for me because I went to school right down the street. I went to Columbia as an undergrad many, many years back. So, And uh, my, uh, my uh, oldest, uh, my, uh, my daughter, uh, is a high school senior, and she's applying to uh, Columbia and Barnard as well. So if you know somebody that knows somebody, please let me know. <laughs> Because if she's here, I'll be here every weekend. I mean, we'll, be, we'll become members of this church. We'll fly in on Saturday. To... <laughs> um, uh, very excited about a church, uh, what's happening in a church like this, and that uh, when I was a student here, this is about you know, 30 plus years back, uh, th I had so much trouble finding a church uh, all throughout New York City looking for churches. And to see a church like this that's in the community, committed to the, to the ministry of this community and neighborhood, uh, it's very exciting. And... Uh, my, my, my props to the pastors here and the work that's been going on here. This is, uh, this is good work. Thank you for the good work that, uh, that you're all a part of. Uh, so thinking back to 33 years ago when I first got uh, to New York uh, as a 17-year-old as a freshman, um, and uh, I turned 50 in 2017. Uh, yeah, I know I don't look it, but I'm 50. <laughs> so I did uh, what I did when I turned 40, which is to resolve that this is the decade that I'm going to lose weight and get fit. Uh, it didn't work in my 40s, but it's going to work now. Uh, and part of it is I decided to do some research. I'm, a, I'm an academic, so i got to do some research. So I said, I'm going to research what is the best way to stay fit and get healthy uh, in this day and age. And so I used the academic's best tool. It's called Google. So I go online, and I Google what's the best exercise program and fitness program that's out there right now. And I found out that it's something called CrossFit P90X. You all heard of this, CrossFit? Yeah, so it turns out it's one of the best exercise programs that's out there. I'm not doing it, but I like what they're doing. <laughs> I like their philosophy. The philosophy behind CrossFit is something called muscle confusion, right? Which is great, because that's been my approach to exercise my entire life. Uh, essentially, I don't go to the gym for months, and when we go, my muscles are confused why we're there. That's the way muscle confusion works for me. Uh, so as I'm thinking through the exercise programs and the way that physical health might actually require confusion, disruption, uh, some kind of change that changes the way you uh, operate in the status quo. Uh, I started thinking, if that's good for physical health, which I think it can be, is that also good for our spiritual health? That sometimes our spiritual lives are stagnant because we are nervous about disruption, confusion. Uh, uh, he taught at NYU many years ago, Richard Sennett writes in one of his books, Without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us want to change? We like the status quo. We like things to stay the way they are. We don't want to talk about difficult things. We don't want to challenge ourselves like that. We love the status quo. And unless God comes in and disrupts us or causes that kind of disruption, maybe sometimes our spiritual lives will be stagnant. And I want to, I want to commend you for what you're doing here and having these difficult and challenging conversations on race. 
Because I think many out there in the world right now are saying, we don't want to talk about race. We don't believe in racial differences. We don't want to talk about racial conflict. It's too difficult to talk about those things. So we'll rather bury our heads in the sands than ignore it. What you're doing is saying that sometimes this kind of disruption, this kind of confusion, these kind of challenges are actually good for your spiritual life. It's good for your spiritual health. So I want to talk about how um, a very obscure book of the Bible, the book of Lamentations, and the practice of lament might actually cause some of that disruption that actually could lead to spiritual health. Uh, Some of this, of course, comes from a book that I recently wrote. Uh, I actually spent about five years writing this book. came out a couple of years ago. Uh, It's a commentary on the book of Lamentations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my wife makes, still makes fun of me. She said, you spend five years working on this book, you're going to sell about four copies because nobody wants a book on a book of Lamentations. Why couldn't you do Romans, Ephesians, or The Purpose Driven Asian? Anything that might sell a few more copies than you're going to get when you do a book on Lamentations. Uh, part of my motivation was realizing how absent lament is absent uh, and missing in our spiritual lives. So um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but uh, what I've typically found when I go to churches and conferences and when I ask, how many have ever heard an entire sermon series on Lamentations? Not the one positive verse in the the book of Lamentations, but an entire sermon series, you know, you get one person out of a couple of hundred because we just don't engage these kinds of themes. I noticed that, especially in worship life, uh, there was a study done by an Old Testament professor in the Washington, D.C. area. And she was looking at what we would call the liturgical uh, tradition and liturgical uh, Christian communities in in the United States. That would be like the Catholics, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, uh, who are actually governed by a a worship book. And so on certain Sundays, you will preach this passage, you will read this hymn, and you will sing this song, uh, this hymn, or read this psalm. So through that, you would actually go and rotate through almost all the psalms and all of the hymns and a lot of the passages of Scripture. However, what uh, Dr. Hopkins found was that when liturgical churches came to a hymn about suffering or a psalm of lament, these churches would drop those and replace it with a happier hymn and a happier psalm. Similar study was done by Glenn Pemberton, and he was looking and comparing the typical Baptist Presbyterian hymnal to the book of Psalms. Now, Psalms are like the hymnals for the uh, people of Israel. They represent the worship life of of Israel. And if you look at the 150 psalms in the Old Testament, 60% of those psalms are psalms about joy, celebration, victory. 40% of them, almost half, are songs about lament and pain and suffering. Now, what Pemberton found, though, if you look at a typical Baptist and Presbyterian hymnal, you'll find that 80 to 85% of those hymns are hymns about joy, celebration, victory, and only 15 to 20% of our hymns are about suffering, uh, struggle, pain, and lament. So, and that's just what's in the hymnals, not even what's typically sung on a Sunday. So we disproportionately underrepresent the important theme that is very prominent in the Bible, which is lament and suffering and those who are crying out in the midst of that suffering. Now, I did a similar study on uh, a CCLI uh, listings. Now, those of you who know what CCLI uh, stands for, it stands for Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated. And every time you put a contemporary worship song on the screen, you're supposed to have a little number that shows that you are licensed to project those songs on the screen. And every week or every month or so, you're supposed to write into this company, let them know that you sang that song, and they compile the list because every time you sing that song, 
an angel gets his wings. I don't know what happens, but somehow or another, money gets to the people who wrote these songs. And that's, that's fair, because if you're using that, you want to distribute the royalties. So they actually need to keep an accurate list of all the songs that are publicly sung in a typical church on a Sunday. So every year, they compile the top 100 most popular contemporary worship songs every year in August. So I went through the list of, uh, or rather my TA, went through all of those songs. <laughs> That's why you have TAs. Uh, went through every lyric, every title, to try to find out how many of our top 100 most popular contemporary worship songs are songs about lament. How many of you say, just like in the Bible, 40% of our songs on contemporary worship are songs of lament? About 25%. How about 20%? How about 15%? How about... 10%. I, I'm going to say about 5 to 10 of our worship songs that are in the top 100 are songs of lament. And I'm using the word lament in very generous ways. The song starts off, I cry out. Yes, we're going to count that. The rest of the song is, I cry out for joy. No, we're still going to count it. We just have so few of these songs out there. So uh, lament is absent as a, uh, a text that we engage, as a uh, worship practice that we engage. So what happens when lament is missing from the life of the church? This was the question posed by Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar. And he says, when you lose lament, you lose the sense of justice. Because lament is the crying out against injustice. Lament is the crying out for justice in the face of injustice. And if you're unable to lament, you don't have that necessary engagement with the theme and narrative of justice and the reality of understanding injustice. So we need to re-engage this theme of lament, and I want to introduce you today to the book of Lamentations, and we're going to do a little bit about Lamentations to try and understand ways that lament offers us a way to engage difficult topic, topics in conversation, such as race. Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 and following. How deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations, she who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. So in verse 1, we're getting a little snapshot of the historical context of the book of Lamentations. We know the history that Israel, under King David and King Solomon, flourished as a nation, was one of the greatest nations, a superpower of its time. David was a great military leader. Solomon was a great economic leader. So by the end of these two reigns, you ended up with Israel as a powerful nation, and the symbol of their power was really the capital city of Jerusalem. And we know that they built a beautiful palace, but also this amazing temple filled with gold, silver, precious metal, precious stone. We know that people from all over the world came to marvel at this temple and this, this capital city as a symbol of its greatness. But that temple falls because of Israel's disobedience. The subsequent kings after uh, David and Solomon were uh, worshipped idols. They disobeyed the Ten Commandments. They led the people astray, and God needed to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. So the northern kingdom gets wiped out, the southern kingdom gets wiped out, and all that's left is the capital city of Jerusalem, and eventually Jerusalem falls to the Babylonian Empire. That's why it says in verse 2, bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks, among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her, all her friends have betrayed her, they have become her enemies. This is the perspective of Jerusalem, which has fallen as a great city and is now laid waste. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So you see the key word there, exile. Exile is the worst thing that could happen to the people of God. The people of God have the promised land. 
Their identity is tied into that promised land. Their capital reflects their success in that promised land. Now they've lost not only their land, not only their capital, but they also lost their identity. And one of the ways that happened is this exile, which was promised, if you disobey in Deuteronomy, uh, you will be exiled into a land that's far away. That's exactly what happens, a curse of God, which is resulting in exile. And what the exile did was it took all the abled body, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the learned, the intellectuals, anybody who could probably read or write, anybody they deemed as having the capacity to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the, cap, uh, and the nation of Israel, they sent away into exile. Of course, you know the story of Daniel and his friends. They would have been young men who they said, they might be able to rebuild Israel. Let's take them away into exile. And the only ones left in Jerusalem were the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, anybody they deemed as less than capable of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. So what we're seeing here then is a broken system, a broken world for the people of God. Now, when you are encountering these challenges and the world around you is falling apart and all these changes are occurring, you actually have a couple of options. You have more than that, but I want to focus on two of these options. The potential response to the exile is, one, run away and hide. After all, this is the worst-case scenario for the people of God. They've lost their home. They've lost their capital. They've lost their identity. Anybody who can rebuild the city is sent away into exile. If you have an excuse to give up, this would be it. If you have an excuse to run away and hide, this would be it. But it is into that context that Jeremiah, or Yahweh through Jeremiah, writes a letter to the exile in Jeremiah chapter 29. Chapter 29, verse 4 says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah is writing a letter, Yahweh is speaking through Jeremiah, to write to the exiles in, uh, in, uh, in Babylon. It says in verse 5 and 6, You are to go and to, into and Babylon and to marry and have children, and to plant crops, and to eat of those crops, and give your children away to marriage, and then they will have children. In other words, you don't give up. You live your life. You continue to be God's people and flourish as God's people, even if you are in the worst place imaginable, Babylon. This is capped off in verse 7 of chapter 29. It says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have carried you into exile. Now, if you are an exile or a former resident of Jerusalem, reading this passage, you're very upset by this. Because almost every other time in the Bible, you see the phrase, seek the peace, what city is going to be associated with it? Seek the peace of Jerusalem. Absolutely. Of course it makes sense. Capital city of the promised land, David's city in the name itself, the city of God's peace, Jerusalem. Of course you seek the peace of Jerusalem, but verse 7 says... Not seek the peace of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of Babylon. Of all places in the world to seek the peace of. Babylon is the absolute last place you would want to seek the peace and prosperity of. It is, it is Hollywood, Vegas, Washington, D.C., New York City, all rolled into one. Everything that is wrong with the world gets rolled up into Babylon. And God says, not seek the peace of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of Babylon. In other words, you may be in the worst place imaginable. You may be in the most broken, fallen down place you can think of. And God still says, my people do not give up. My people don't get to run away and hide. You are to seek the peace, not just of Jerusalem. When things are going well, 
When you got David and Solomon as your leaders, when your economy is growing and your, and your nation is strong, that's not the only time you seek the peace. Even when you are in the most broken place you can think of, imaginable, you are to seek the peace of Babylon, of all places on earth. Now, here's part of the problem, though. Christians in America are better at running away and hiding than seeking the peace of the broken places. We see this in the race conversation. It is easier to run away and bury your head than it is to actually engage the issue. It is easier to say, well, I'm colorblind, I don't see race, versus saying, actually, there's a long, long history of race we've got to deal with. We don't get to run away and hide as God's people. We don't get to run away and hide. But here's one of the, the examples of how American Christians in particular have kind of run away and hid when difficult situations and circumstances arise. I'll go back to the early part of, of a U.S. church history, American church history. Uh, the governor of Massachusetts pulls up to the uh, Massachusetts Bay, and uh, he's thinking about the future of this uh, nation that is about to be formed on the uh, East Coast. And, and he looks over what will become the great city of Boston, and he says, I see six Super Bowls in your future. No, he says, I see in Boston a city set on a hill. You know that story, right? Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts, I see a city set on a hill. Now, he's taking that right out of the book of Matthew, and he's imagining a new Jerusalem in the new world. And out of these urban centers in the new Jerusalems, they're going to shine forth the light of the gospel out of Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, Boston. Now, Boston, by the way, takes that so seriously that one of the main neighborhoods in Boston, if you've ever been there, is called Beacon Hill. One of the main streets that runs right through the middle of the city is called Beacon Street. So there was this narrative within American society that the new world, the urban centers, are going to be where the light of the gospel shines forth into all the world. And that holds from the 17th, 18th to the 19th century, and two major factors changes that perception of American cities as Jerusalem's and the, uh, and the, and the city set on a hill. The first is the immigration pattern changes. And it changes from Western and Northern Europeans to Southern and Eastern Europeans. It changes from British Anglicans and Scottish Presbyterians and German Lutherans, Protestants, away towards Southern Europeans such as Italian Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Polish Jews, Eastern European Orthodox. And now you're getting an influx into the city, not of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but Southern and Eastern Europeans. Maybe the, the best example that I can think of is very recently I, I uh, watched uh, Gangs of New York, a Scorsese film, uh, and I was told to watch this because they said, oh, you write a lot about race issues, you're going to love this movie, it's about a race riot and a race war in, in New York City. So I got all excited, put the DVD in, and I'm watching this movie and I'm getting really confused. Wait, this is a race war? Because you got Daniel Day-Lewis leading one gang, the whitest guy in Hollywood, and you got Leonardo DiCaprio leading the other gang, the second whitest guy in Hollywood, and they're fighting each other. How is this a race war? Well, it's because it is this conflict between the Western Europeans and the Southern Europeans, the Protestants versus the non-Protestants who are now beefing in these cities. So what you're seeing then is this conflict, this anxiety, this fear. In fact, one writer puts it this way, in the feverish imagination of antebellum, anti-Catholic literary provocateurs, these neighborhoods appeared as caves of rum and Romanism. Wow, that's a good phrase. <laughs> caves of rum and Romanism, which meant that the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, nervous about these changes, began to leave the city. There was a second factor that was probably more significant, 
And that was the movement of African Americans from the southern states to the northern states. This is called the Great Migration. There are several excellent books. Isabel Wilkerson and John Giggy have two different books that are excellent accounts of what happened here. Uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation, after the Civil War, uh, African Americans leave the plantation. Uh, they start even trying to form their own communities in the Mississippi Delta. Many of these are burnt out by the Klan, by the white supremacists. They come and destroy these neighborhoods. So many African Americans say, there's no future for us in the South, start moving to the northern cities. Places like Baltimore, New York, Philadelphia from the Carolinas, but the Mississippi Delta folks end up in Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati, etc., these Midwestern Rust Belt cities. Now what happens again is that as African Americans start moving into these urban centers, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are beginning to say, our schools are not as good anymore. Our housing prices are going down. Our neighborhoods are not as safe anymore. We need to move away from the urban neighborhoods to these suburban communities. And so you see this phenomenon known as white flight. It wasn't just white flight, by the way. It was white Christian flight. That's why you see so many Christian colleges. They're trying to come back into the city, but most are outside of the city. They moved to Wheaton, Illinois. I mean, outside of Chicago. <laughs> they moved to... I mean, outside of New York City, they started moving out of the urban centers to these suburban communities because it was not just white flight, it was white Christian flight. You see this in actually in church buildings. So uh, in uh, 1945, $26 million was spent in the entire United States on new church buildings. Think about that. That's like one building for a megachurch these days. But in the entire U.S., $26 million is spent. 15 years later, by 1960, $1 billion is now being spent. Why such an exponential leap? Because the 40s, 50s, and 60s is the height of white flight. It's the height of whites leaving urban neighborhoods, abandoning beautiful buildings in many of our urban centers, and moving to the suburbs 30 minutes, an hour away, and now they're building new buildings in the suburbs. I noticed... Uh, when I started kind of traveling around the country, looking at buildings that were especially built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even into the 1970s, that there was a church architecture that was a common theme. Many of the church buildings look like this, the sanctuaries. You have a slanted roof, a little bit of an arch on the side. How many of you have seen church buildings that look like this? Yeah, most of us have seen your typical traditional church built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s had this kind of architecture. Now, as I'm looking at this building, though, I'm thinking... This is not very efficient. In fact, I was a, a nine-year-old at a church dedication in the 1970s, and I'm seeing this building, and I'm thinking, this is a really stupid idea for a sanctuary. Why? I was in a cold-weather state in the middle of January when we were dedicating this building. Where is the, are the heating vents in a cold-weather state? Right along the baseboard. Where does all that wonderful warm air go on a January day? Right up into the rafters. You literally have the frozen chosen on the ground and all that warm air up in the rafters. Now, what do you have to do to push that warm air down? You build ceiling fans to push the warm air down, and then Pentecostals and Charismatics can't worship with you because they keep hitting their hands on the ceiling fans. So you end up with a form of architecture that just doesn't seem to make any sense. And I knew this as a nine-year-old, sitting in that cold church building saying, whose stupid idea was this to build a building like this? Our senior pastor gets up. And he says, it was my idea to build the church building to look like this. And he asked us to take a look and think about this church building turned completely upside down. And he says, what are you looking at when you're looking at this building turned upside down? He said, you're looking at the bottom of a ship. You're looking at the bottom of a really large boat. 
Now, where in the Bible do you learn about a really large boat, a really large ship? Noah's Ark. Now, think with me what it means when a church says to the world, we are Noah's Ark. We like being on this ship. We don't care about what's going out there in the world. We want the world to be judged and destroyed as long as we are safe in Noah's Ark. We run away and hide in Noah's Ark. Now think about this. So we create a little bit of the world out there in Noah's Ark. Because if the world has their secular art, we will have our Christian art. If the world has secular education, we will have Christian education. If the world has secular books, we will have Christian books. If the world has secular music, we'll have not as good mediocre Christian music. And whatever is out there in the world, we will have a little Christianized version of it right here on our ark. Now, how do you do evangelism from an ark? Very badly. <laughs> Here's how evangelism works on the ark. Uncle Joe floats by. Of course you love Uncle Joe. He's your family. He's your uncle. So you take out that one life preserver that you have, you throw it out there, and you bring Joe onto the ark. And you're excited. Uncle Joe, you're going to fit in right now. You're going to fit in perfectly here. You're going to love the way we do things, the culture, the language. Everything is going to fit what you like. We're so glad you're on this ark, Uncle Joe. But another person floats by, and he's your neighbor, and you pause because he borrowed your mower and didn't give it back last week. But more importantly, you're not sure he's going to fit on your ark. He's of a different culture. He's of a different race. He's of a different, a different kind of, everything's different. I mean, you know, on our ark, we clap 2-4. He looks like a 1-3 clapper. He's going to throw everybody off. This is not going to work. You know, we, we, we brought one bottle of sriracha. We think that's enough. But when he comes on, he's going to want a lot more sriracha. It's going to run out really quickly. So you say, maybe there's another ark down the street that is more for his kind of people. And that mentality actually led to extreme segregation in the church. And so it's not just in the 60s when King says 11 a.m. is the most segregated time in America. By the time you get to the year 2000, Michael Emerson, my provost, a sociologist, points out that the level of segregation in the American church, there was only one other time in church American history that you had that level of segregation, hyper-segregation, as same as the American church by the year 2000, and that was in the Deep South with Jim Crow laws. You had to mandate and legally enforce segregation to get to the level of segregation we had by the turn of the century in the, in the American church because we said, we just want to be safe in our ark. We don't want to engage with the world out there. We just want to be safe in, with our people, with hanging out with our friends here on the ark. Here's where we can say, this is now why it's so important to not ignore these issues, to say we have got to engage these difficult conversations. The topic of race is not an option because it is all around us. It is all around the, the air that we breathe, the environment that we live in, the structures and systems that we live in. It's all around us. We can't hide out in Noah's Ark anymore. But let me point out that the Book of Lamentations gives us two significant ways that we engage the racial conflict and racial divide in our country. And out of the scriptures, we can find maybe two. There's more, but two that I want to point out to. The first is that the book of Lamentations is written in a genre known as the funeral dirge. Go to the next slide. Uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4 are written in this style. Uh, there's several characteristics, about nine of them, but I want to point out two of them. One is that it begins with a particular cry. 
The word ekha is, uh, is the beginning cry for chapter 1, 2, and 4. Uh, and four. But there's another piece of, of, the, uh, of, the, of Lamentations. Uh, the key thing about Hebrew poetry is that it doesn't, have, doesn't use rhyme, it uses metering. So Hebrew poetry is six steps, six beats, five beats, five beats, seven beats, seven beats. So one of the key things about Hebrew poetry, if you read it in the original Hebrew, you'll find that the number of beats is always, almost always even. That's a characteristic to show you that this is poetry. Now, what happens, though, is that on rare occasions, you don't get the six, six, seven, seven, five, five. You get slightly offbeat. You get six, four, five, seven, seven, four. Now, why would you do that? Because if even metering indicates kind of a normal state of being, when you have uneven metering, it shows something is not right. It's called uh, the Kina meter. So Scrabble players, Q word without the U, <laughs> write that down. Uh, <laughs> another way of saying that is the limping meter, because as you're reading this chapter, you're realizing you're limping along because something's broken, something's hurting. And so the funeral dirge is a reminder that something is not right. The way I teach it in my uh, courses is that there's a difference for my, uh, when I teach my seminary students, there's a difference when you're a pastor between a hospital visit and a funeral service. I tell you to my students, do not act the same way because they're different things. If you go to a hospital visit, you are praying with the possibility that this person will come out of the hospital. You join hands, you sing hymns, you, uh, you pray over them with the possibility that the person, no matter how sick they are, will come out of that hospital in some form because the person is still alive and the hospital visit reflects that. I think our problem in a conversation on race is that we think every conversation on race is a hospital visit when actually it might be a funeral service. Because in a funeral service, you can't ignore the dead bodies in the room. There are too many dead bodies to deal with. And in this case, when you do a hospital visit, well, we'll just sing a few songs, we'll join hands, we'll sing Kumbaya, hug it out, I love you, man, and we're done. That's racial reconciliation. But if you're at a funeral service and the whole history is littered with dead bodies, you've got to deal with the dead bodies in the room. Um, part of my research has been in the longer history of, of slavery and uh, the slave trade. Uh, I'm working on a book right now with a Native American uh, part writing partner, uh, Mark Charles, a Navajo Indian. And we're, yeah, good man. <laughs> we're working through some of the, the concepts of how slavery of the African and genocide of the Native became kind of a normal narrative for American society. And one of the things we were looking at is something called the Doctrine of Discovery, which was a series of pronouncements by the Catholic Church that said it is okay for Europeans to view any other people as less than. In fact, there were two different doctrines that were two different statements. One was made to the king of Portugal, giving permission for his uncle, who happened to be uh, Prince Henry, who is also known as Henry the Navigator. And if you look it up on Google or Wikipedia, you'll find that Henry the Navigator was one of the key people who started the transatlantic slave trade. How did he give, get the motivation and the, and the justification for that slave trade? It actually came from the church. The church said, Henry, you are the true image bearer of God. You have the spirit of God within you. So when you encounter other people, they are less made in the image of God. So when you go to the coast of Africa and you encounter African bodies, they are inferior to you. 
They are not made in the image of God the way you are made in the image of God. Therefore, you have the right to do whatever you want with that people. And what it led to, of course, was the enslavement of the African. Prince Henry uh, is, uh, is the, the Henry the Navigator start, who starts the slave trade. When he pulled up to the west coast of Africa, he looks across well, the, the, the bodies that will eventually become slaves in the, in the New World, in, the, in, in North and South America. His secretary, his historian, was someone by the name of Zurara. My, uh, my academic mentor, Willie Jennings, writes about this, where he writes about the pages that Zurara writes down the account of the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade is filled with his tears. His tears wet the page. Why? Because Zurara is seeing the inhumanity before him, the suffering of the African slaves before him, and he's moved to tears because of that great compassion. Now, Henry, uh, Zurara, however, uh, becomes okay with that, and he actually writes... I'm still going to go along with the slave trade, even though this picture in front of me is so horrible that tears wet the page of this, of this manuscript, I'm still going along for two reasons. The first reason is that I believe that Prince Henry is a good man. He claims to be a Christian. He claims to say this, seems to be doing the right thing. He maybe holds the same values that I do. Therefore, I'm going to trust that good man to do the right thing. Let that be a lesson for us that sometimes... It's appropriate to challenge authority. It's appropriate to say, you may talk the talk of Christianity, but that doesn't mean you're walking the walk of Christianity. And it is appropriate. Zorara should have spoken up and said, you might claim to be a, prince, uh, a Christian prince, but your actions clearly don't indicate that. But Zorara said, this is a good Christian man. He's a good Christian leader. I would do whatever he says, which means taking slaves into captivity. The second thing that happens, though, is that Henry uh, acts, uh, acts Christian. And one of the ways he acts Christians, he takes the bodies in front of him, takes a tenth, and offers it as a tithe to the two priests that are on the ship with him. And the church accepts that tithe. So that from day one of the slave trade, you are seeing the culpability of the church by accepting that tithe of human beings taken as, as chattel labor. So what we're seeing then is this, the dead bodies that are in our history. It wasn't just some random people who decided to implement slavery. It was the church giving permission, the church affirming those decisions. And those are the dead bodies we have to deal with. When those bodies were put on those ships, they would travel over across the Middle Passage into the New World. Uh, we know that Frederick Douglass actually writes about how many schools of sharks would follow these ships because a dead body would be coming over. Bodies that were killed or died in the hold, but also people who would just jump overboard because they were so frightful of what was going to happen. So schools of sharks would follow these ships. The ship would pull up to the new world and, and, and they would be taken into, into, into captivity, into slavery on the plantations and the abuse of these bodies, the sexual abuse of the women especially on these plantations, the physical abuse, on, and, and, and the, of course the death that was, these are all dead bodies in our history that we cannot ignore. The dead bodies of strange fruit hanging from southern trees. The dead bodies of, of Jim Crow laws, oppressive action, lynchings. All these stories are a part of our history, and we can't act like it's just a hospital visit because a funeral means there's a dead body in the room. How then do we begin to challenge these narratives so to say we've got to deal with the dead bodies in the room? The second aspect of Lamentations that speaks to our engagement on race is who wrote the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is usually credited to the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, and I explained this a little bit earlier. 
What happened after the exile was that it was the, uh, the, those who could read or write, the literate, they were all sent away into exile into Babylon. Uh, those who were left behind were probably illiterate, probably more like the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. So there are very few candidates who had the capacity to read or write who could write a book like Lamentations. So the one candidate who is capable of doing that would have been the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is usually considered to be the author of the book of Lamentations because he would have been the only, one of the very few prophets who were allowed to stay behind, if not the only one. So the writing of Lamentations is often attributed to Jeremiah. Here's the problem. If you read the book of Jeremiah in its original Hebrew and you read Lamentations in its original Hebrew, both are credited to Jeremiah, you realize there is no way the same guy wrote both of these books. The writing style is so different. I compare it to Shakespeare and Tupac. <laughs> Both are great poets, probably not the same guy, just the hunch. What we're seeing here in Jeremiah Lamentation is such a sharp difference in writing style that it's unlikely that the same guy wrote both the books. So how do we reconcile this? Jeremiah is the best and maybe the only candidate to write it down, but also this writing style doesn't work. What happened is Jeremiah wrote down the words, but Jeremiah is not writing down his words. What happens is after the fall of Jerusalem, they, the people gather at the city gate, but especially those that have been hurt, the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the sick, they all come out and they start telling their stories. And Jeremiah is there not saying, this is what you should think. He's listening, hearing their stories, writing down their stories. In fact, I argue in my book that Jer Lamentations might be the most feminine book of the Bible, more so than Esther and Ruth. Why? Because it's the voice of the widows, the mothers, those voices rise up front and center. And I'll just do as a side note, if there's something that the American church really needs to understand better, it's how to listen to women's voices better. We've got to listen to women's voices better. We don't do that well at all. Lamentations is the giving of space for these women's voices to rise up. It's the giving of space for voices of the oppressed to rise up. Here is Jeremiah, the privilege and right, by the way, he actually had the right answers, and educated, and status, everything, power, everything you could attribute to a person of privilege and power, Jeremiah's God. But when it comes time for a lament, he gets out of the way so that those whose voices have been silenced can rise up. That's what lament does. It gives voice to the voiceless. It gives voice to the marginalized. One, one way to look at this is what Brueggemann distinguishes between two different theologies that emerge in our culture, a theology of the haves and a theology of the have-nots, a theology of celebration and a theology of suffering. I'll give a quick explanation of this. Theology of celebration is those who have good things trying to understand how to deal with these good things. So for example, think of the richest neighborhood in New York. Maybe it's downtown. Maybe it's in Jersey, maybe it's in Long Island. Think of the richest neighborhood, and we sneak into that gated community. We knock on the door, and a 16-year-old girl answers. And we ask her, what is heaven going to be like? And she says, heaven's going to be awesome, because here on earth, I have a Dell desktop. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a Mac Airbook. Here on earth, I have a, a Toyota Yaris that I got for my 16th birthday. When I get to heaven, I'm getting a Lamborghini. Here on earth, I have a small little desktop TV. When I get to heaven, I'm getting the 80-inch plasma, full satellite, and full sound, uh, surround sound hookup. That's what I'm going to get in heaven. So for this 16-year-old who lives with a lot of haves, 
who operates in celebration, heaven is more of the good things she already has on earth. Now, we take that same question, but we go to a different part of the world to a totally different, but maybe uh, same age, 16-year-old girl. Maybe you go to Darfur, Sudan, in the midst of the civil war. Maybe you go to Lebanon in the midst of the refugee crisis of Syrian refugees. Maybe you go to Haiti after the earthquake. Maybe you go to Puerto Rico after the, 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 the storms. You go to a community that has been ravaged and there is suffering, and you go and ask a 16-year-old girl, I guarantee you she will give you a completely different set of answers than the wealthy 16-year-old in the United States. That 16-year-old in Darfur, Sudan, that 16-year-old in a refugee camp in Lebanon will say, heaven is nothing like the world I'm living in right now. Heaven is a place where there's clean uh, water and food nearby. I have to go miles to get that. Heaven is a place where my parents have not been killed by bombers and, and my home blown up. Heaven is a place where I'm not worried about getting raped every night of my life. Heaven is nothing like the world I'm living in right now. Now, we in the West, we believe that the 16-year-old in that rich community has got all the answers, got the education and resources, and they're just, yeah, but it's to go over there and dump it. Maybe, maybe fill a shoebox full of good stuff and just dump it over there on those poor people in Africa and the Middle East. When actually, if you really want to understand the fullness of heaven, it's not just the person of privilege, but it's the marginalized voice you need to hear. If you really want a full picture of heaven, you've got to engage both of those voices in order to understand the fullness of the gospel message. And so for us, when we talk about race, when we talk about these challenges, it is the goal to bring these voices together, and that's where our hope is. Our hope is not that we can go fix everybody else's problems. The hope is that out of our intersection, out of our conversation, emerges a much more profound, holistic, shalom picture of the gospel. And our hope is built not on our privilege, not on our power, but upon the capacity to hear the different voices that are, that are available. Um, I actually uh, grew up in, in a rough neighborhood in Baltimore, which is actually redundant. I grew up in a neighborhood in Baltimore. Uh, um, and uh, because my, fam my parents split, my mom was a single mom raising four kids, we went, moved to a, a neighborhood in inner city Baltimore that was a third, a third poor black, a third poor white, and a third poor recent uh, immigrants. And uh, it was interesting how we didn't get along with each other. Even though we had poverty in common, we still were divided. So in elementary school, we sort of got along. In junior high school, you started seeing the racial divide. By senior high school, you had full-blown gangs straight along racial lines. And I was always confused by that because I said, look, we all hate the man. We all hate what's going on in the world out there. Why can't we all get along together? Why are we all beefing with each other? But that was the reality of, of, the, of the context that I grew up in. Now, my mom really committed to raise her children to be followers of Jesus, but also commitment to education. And that's where uh, my commitment to education came from, from my mom's uh, example. So I was able to come here to Columbia, went on to Harvard, went on to Duke, went on to Gordon-Conwell. Uh, these are the places that uh, was motivated because my mom said education is the way out of the neighborhood that we grew up in. So I look at my position now as someone with five advanced degrees and living in an upper middle class neighborhood in, uh, in the city of Chicago, racially mixed, but more of a middle class neighborhood. And I think back to growing up in the hood in Baltimore, uh, realizing that there's this huge difference and that um, I kind of lost hearing the voices from when I was 10 years old or when I was 11 years old, and that I'm missing something because I don't hear those voices anymore, and that my life is not complete because I don't hear those voices anymore. Part of a community like this is the possibility 
capacity, dream of being able to hear, the hope of being able to hear each other's voices and to be transformed by those voices. Um, I was an extrovert for many years when I was a pastor, but in the last five, ten years, I became an extreme introvert. Uh, I started going to a lot more conferences, and it worked out perfectly that I was able to come here. Next week, I'll be in San Francisco. Week after that, I'll be in Australia. Week after that, I'll be in London. So I do a lot of traveling. I speak at a lot of conferences, especially in the United States. And after a while, you just get tired of these conferences, and, um, and because it's the same thing over and over again. And at, at one point, I remember people would come up to me after I do my workshop and ask me about, well, so what's the secret to an urban church? What's the secret to multi-ethnic churches? And I usually say, I think the best secret is to not come to these conferences anymore <laughs> because you pay $300 for your registration fee, $300 for your airfare, $300 for your two nights at the Hyatt, $300 for food and incidentals. You know, just save your money because there is a key to growing churches and healthy churches and dynamic churches. It is a praying spouse and a praying mom. The rest of the stuff you can figure out on your own. The praying spouse and the praying mom, those are non-negotiables. And I talk about my mom. She's now in her 80s, but uh, uh, as I mentioned, she was a single mom raising four kids in inner city Baltimore. Uh, she worked a 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. shift at the, the, uh, the carryout uh, in downtown Baltimore, that, uh, inner city Baltimore that she worked. And if you grew up in the hood, you know the type of store I'm talking about with the plexiglass in the front and the lazy Susan where the food and the money go back and forth. That's the place my, where my mom worked. She worked there from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. After that, she would rush to her night job, which was a nurse's aide in an inner city nursing home, and she would change the bedpans and be on call from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. She would rush home, uh, make food and breakfast for her kids, get two hours of sleep, send us off, and then get, after two hours of sleep, go back to her day job. So she worked 20 hours a day, six days a week, and then on Sunday, she made sure that we went to church. Uh, and when she was at church, she would be making food for the elders and for the deacons and for the pastors of the church. Uh, that was the example that I grew up with. Uh, and when I think about what makes for a person's success and, and triumph in the world, it's not the 29-year-old hipster pastor. It's not, the, it's not the person with all the accomplishments. It is the grandmas and the moms who pray on their knees for the children and their grandchildren. My mom is now in her 80s. About 20 years ago, she showed me the condition of her knees. Most of us have one kneecap on each knee. She has five on each knee. Why? Because she's been on her knees praying an hour a day for the last 50 years for her children and her grandchildren. And when you kneel that long and your pressure on the wood floor, you can't take it, her kneecaps cracked open so that when she prays now, her kneecaps conform to the shape of the wood floor and so that her kneecaps, her body has conformed to that life of 50 years of the discipline of prayer. These are the stories that you're missing. The stories of the immigrant family that's trying to keep life together. The stories of, of the grandmother on her knees praying for her children and her grandchildren. The story of the homeless family that has nowhere to go but still are able to trust in God. The prayers of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the older person who has lived through situation after situation. Hear those stories because in that we have the possibility of engaging one side of God, but also the other side of God. The hope of God and the victory of God, but also the suffering and the lament of God. This is the place where that could happen. I challenge you to not run away and hide from those conversations, but seek out these truths as you work together in this community. Lord, I thank you for this church and the good work that has already been happening here. Thank you for the commitment of the pastor and the staff and the leaders here who are trying to do not the easy thing, 
not maintain the status quo, but actually allow room for disruption, allow room for confusion. And I pray out of that confusion will come a hope that those places of disruption, those places of confusion might actually be a good place and that our dis-ease with injustice should lead us to pursue justice even more. That our dis-ease with the status quo should call us to hope for a God who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope or imagine. Make this a place of lament. Make this a place of hope that emerges from lament. We pray this in your name. Amen.